Welcome to SBNM is Here, the State Bar of New Mexico's official podcast. In this series, we'll discuss topics such as professional development, tools of the legal trade, and mental and professional well-being. Connecting the legal community across New Mexico, SBNM is here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to season three of SBNM is Here. This is Morgan Pettit, member services manager and podcast producer. So you've heard about it. You may have even read about it. And you probably have some questions about it. Well, it's finally time to hear about mandatory succession planning or Rule 16-119, which is effective October 1st of 2022. Bill Sleese of the Professional Development Program and Ann Taylor of the New Mexico Disciplinary Board will fill you in on what the rule is, what to do, and some questions they've already received thus far. A quick 25-minute listen will hopefully go a long way for you in your understanding and implementation of this rule. As Bill says in the intro, although it's mandatory, it doesn't have to be painful. Hopefully this episode helps clarify any questions you may have. And of course, you're always welcome to reach out to the bar or the deep board for further questions. And you can also keep your eyes open on CLE courses on the this rule as well. We've been hosting a few and probably will for the next year just to make sure everybody's on board. With that, Bill, it's all yours. Uh, thank you, Morgan. I appreciate you all giving us an opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, I'm Bill Sleese. I'm the Professional Development Program Director here at the State Bar of New Mexico, and I'm really happy to have joining uh, me today Ann Taylor, who is Chief Disciplinary Counsel for the New Mexico Disciplinary Board. And what we want to talk to you about just really briefly is mandatory succession planning. Um, as I've said for the past year or so, it's it's going to have to happen, but it doesn't have to be all that difficult or painful. Um, and, and I think maybe the best way, some of you probably have heard that uh, there's a mandatory rule, and we'll certainly talk about what the mandatory rule requires in a minute, but I think always best to set the stage of why. And, and, and you're probably in a much better position, especially given your, your current job, with uh, why mandatory succession planning? What is the issue? So we were finding, and, and it's, the timing is actually really, really interesting because, um, and I don't know if it's pandemic related or just sort of bad luck, but um, we have had a, a lot of uh, lawyers die in the last two years while in active practice. And a lot of them were in practice by themselves. So we, what we were seeing was there was no plan in place. And what we've seen you know, over the years since I've been with the disciplinary board was there's no real plan in place for what happens with uh, a lawyer's practice, his clients, his trust account funds, things of that nature, when somebody dies or becomes disabled unexpectedly. And so what would typically happens is I am notified most often by a client who was either notified by a family member or goes to the office and discovers that the lawyer has passed away or is not there for whatever reason. And they call our office and say, well, what should I do? And so what we were doing in, in a large number of cases is having to appoint ourselves or another separate inventorying attorney um, to go in, try and get the files if we were able to, which we're not always able to. We always don't, we don't always know where they are, where there's an office. Um, and then try and research about client funds, trust account, try and locate trust accounting records, things of that nature. It's very, very difficult to do sort of flying blind. Um, I've even taken calls where some, somebody will ask me, can you appoint an inventorying attorney? And I don't even know 
where the, the lawyer has a PO box. I don't even know where the lawyer's physical office is. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just, a, it was a really difficult situation. Um, and it appeared like it was, you know, a problem that was in need of a solution. So this is what the court came up with. Yeah, and I, I think you touched on something, you know, important. I, it, it's who's going to help the clients, but it's broader than that, right? It's who's going to help you. It's who's going to help your firm if for some reason you can't practice. And it could be uh, an injury that is a serious injury that's going to take you out for a while. It could be a, a, a disabling illness. It might be some sort of other long-term absence unrelated to any physical conditions. Um, and it might be death. Um, and, and you just touched on that issue with respect to death. Um, you know, then people are having to sort of go in after the fact uh, and do sort of this forensic analysis of the lawyer's practice and sometimes with little to no uh, information to do that. And I, I know that has been a problem even when I was back at the disciplinary board and, and clearly continues, but sounds like it's really gotten um, um, sharp in the last couple of years with a lot more lawyers um, going out of practice unexpectedly uh, and regrettably a lot of them um, dying um, while in the midst of practice. And so um, the Supreme Court has adopted Rule 16119. Uh, which will uh, be effective with October 1 of 2022. And that applies to all attorneys. So that means whether you're a solo uh, government practice lawyer, in-house counsel, an employee, um, whatever you happen to be, um, you have to have a succession plan either individually or as part of a, a law firm plan. Um, and um, I know uh, and you and I were asked to talk um, a little bit about law firm plans, what those look like. Those, those actually will probably be a little easier, right? If you work for a government agency or a big firm, can you talk about that for a, a second? Right. And I think what you and I have told people is you probably, if you work in one of those entities, you probably have a succession plan and you don't even really realize it, right? So, um, you know, we used to do the, when, when Bill was here, he used to have the whole, when a bus runs me over or if a bus runs me over file, um, here's where things are that you need to know about, you know, passwords and, and um, you know, how things that are, were involved in the day-to-day -day running of our office and things of that nature. Uh, most law firms have that because of course people leave um, and they need to have a plan for how those that's gonna be handled when people leave, either they retire or whatever. And so they already have sort of a plan in place. Well, this is what we do when the boss leaves, for example, if the you know head of the agency leaves, who, who's gonna take over and who's gonna know how to run the day-to-day -day stuff. So yeah, I think what we've said is that for, for you, if you're in that situation, your succession plan looks a little bit different um, and it's probably a little bit easier for you to draft up. Right, and, and um, I think that's right. I think, I think there may be what um, some solo practitioners think is gonna be more of a challenge in them drafting one. But even within that, if you actually look at the terms of 16119, I don't think it's gonna be really all that difficult. So here's just sort of the basics of what 16119 require. They require that every lawyer, um, and that's called the designating lawyer under the rules, has to have this succession plan, again, either individually or as part of a law firm plan. Um, and it's just got to have a very few things, right? It's got to identify who's going to assist if the succession plan is triggered, who is the assisting lawyer or lawyers. Um, and it doesn't have to be a single lawyer that is the assisting lawyer, right? And it can be more than one. It can be a law firm. It can be a pool of lawyers. Right. It's, and if you work in a law firm, it's probably going to be somebody, you know, a, a group of lawyers in your law firm. They're the designated 
you know, lawyer that's going to assist. Right. And, and one of the questions that I know um, I was asked early on when the Succession and Transition Committee was working on a mandatory rule, uh, well, what about payment? If, I, if I'm going to serve as an assisting lawyer, is it okay for me to get paid? Um, and, and I think the answer is yes. Uh, I think that's part of the discussion between the designating lawyer and the assisting lawyer in terms of how you build that succession plan. Um, I know some lawyers have said, as they are thinking through what a succession plan might look like for them, uh, buying uh, key person insurance, life and disability, so that if something unexpected happens and I'm either deceased or long-term out of the practice, there's a funding source for that assisting lawyer to come in and do whatever my succession plan asks that lawyer to do. Um, and what they ask them to do can vary depending on how you draft the plan. The rule doesn't specifically address that. The, the rule, again, is built for that minimum of what you need. So you need that assisting lawyer or lawyers identified in writing. Um, and then you need details on how you access active client case list, the client files, both electronic and physical, um, access to computers and other electronic devices, so passwords, um, and uh, information and access uh, on bank account and billing information, including IOLTA. Um, and I, I know some lawyers have said, well, if I reduce all that into to writing, what do I do with it? I mean, do I give it to my assisting lawyer right away? Do you think that's necessary, Anne? No, I think what you sort of <laughs> contemplate is telling your assisting lawyer, like, I, I don't think it's actually too different than what you do with like an estate plan situation, right? Like you maybe don't want to tell all of your uh, beneficiaries where all of your bank accounts are right now, but you want to have sort of a um, if this happens to me, here's a letter of instruction. Um, so you know, you know, you don't have to give it all, all your information out while you're still in active practice. Yeah, and, and Anne talked about my "if a bus hits me" uh, file when I was at the disciplinary board, and, and she was serving as the deputy before she became the chief. And, and that's what we had. She knew that there was a spot where I had put all of the information she would need to go forward if a bus ran me over. Fortunately, it didn't. Um, but but it's the same concept, right? You you might prepare all of this. You might prepare it electronically, and it's password protected somewhere, where somebody you really trust can open that that password. Or you might reduce it to writing, and you put it in your fireproof safe at home. Um, but again, leaving some instruction to somebody, it, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. Um, here's where you go get that stuff. So um, um, so I don't think you have to to turn all that over immediately to your assisting lawyer. They just have to be able to get to it in the event of succession plan. And I think this triggered. is where you really sort of tailor it to what you have going on, because, you know, for us at our office, I don't have to tell everybody, here's where the files are, other than my individual, if I'm handling individual files, because everybody knows where the files are, you know, so, so it's just, you know, you can, it's not a difficult thing to, for some people to, to be able to come up with. Right. Um, so the rule requires, uh, again, um, designate the assisting attorney or attorneys. Um, information on client uh, matters, current client files, current client case list, um, computer and other passwords, bank account information, including IOLTA. Uh, and you have to notify your assisting lawyer or lawyers in writing and get agreement to them, consent that they will serve in that capacity. Um, what, what we found and what we heard anecdotally um, and actually turned out to be uh, not just anecdotal, there was, uh, I think, a, a demonstrated case of this where an individual had identified on their malpractice uh, policy the uh, successor lawyer who was going to help the the debt the assisting lawyer uh, when the succession plan was triggered but they never told the assisting lawyer they never told the successor 
uh, and lo and behold, that person who's got a busy active caseload uh, and really no ability to help didn't know what they were even getting themselves identified for and into. So you've got to give notice to and get agreement by the assisting lawyer, and you also have to give notice to the clients. Um, now, I think notifying the assisting lawyer has a couple of advantages. One, it actually means you're going to sit down and think through what that plan is going to look like and talk with the assisting lawyer. What's realistic? I think my guess is for most lawyers, particularly if it's a situation in which the lawyer has died or is going to have a long-term incapacity and doesn't plan on coming back anytime in the near future, I suspect it's going to be what I call a distribution model. So you give them access and information on all of that, um, the files, the, the where the bank accounts are located, the invoices, all of that. Uh, and then that lawyer's role is probably just to come in and basically distribute, right? But but you're talking that through with that assisting lawyer when you're explaining to them what the plan is and you're showing them the ropes, how, how that information is going to be accessed if they need to. Um, and then I think it's important to, to meet with them periodically because people's situation changes. So I might designate Ann Taylor as my successor uh, and, and Ann may decide she's hit the lottery or she's uh, gonna go become uh, in-house counsel for um, a public agency or whatever her situation might be that changes this year. Maybe she's not the right fit anymore. Um, so periodically you're checking in with your assisting lawyer, make sure they're still willing, still able. And if not, that you're, you're finding somebody else. What about notifying the clients, Anne? That, that really caused, I think, a lot of people some consternation, like, oh my God, you mean I have to write every client and I have to say, hi, this is Bill and I have a succession plan and Ann Taylor's the successor and she's gonna be looking at your file and I know that's gonna cause you upset and I might be dying next week and, and you know, they're, they're overwhelmed by that, right? So is that what it's talking about? No, it's just talking about what, what we sort of envision is something akin to, you know, what we talk about when we talk about malpractice disclosure, like it's just, in compliance with this rule, I have, you know, named a successor attorney. Um, and it's not that I expect anything. And that's why we said it, you'd be in compliance with the rule and not necessarily, um, you know, telling your client this, like, so because they think something's going to happen to you or whatever. You just explained it's a Supreme Court rule in compliance. This is my successor, successor attorney. Um, and the other thing I think we have to be very clear about um, is that not the person who that doesn't mean it's somebody who's going to represent you, you know, but we're not talking about giving like broad details and making it seem like your, you know, your demise is imminent. Yeah, and I, I, I think um, one of the suggestions I know I've heard is, you know, right in the retainer agreement, there's just a paragraph that talks about, you know, among other things, I, I want to protect my client's interests and pursuant to a Supreme Court rule, which requires me to do so. I've developed a succession plan for the unexpected and unlikely event that I cannot practice and continue on your case. What that means, client, is I've arranged with another lawyer, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, Anne, I don't even think you have to identify the lawyer by name. I think you no. can say, I've arranged with another lawyer to assist in closing, managing my practice in my absence, um, and that lawyer will contact you if for any reason this should uh, unexpectedly come to pass. But they're not representing you, and they'll instruct you on what to do next if that ever happens. I think it's that simple, right? I don't think you have to get into the weeds. I don't think you have to spook your clients. And I think you don't have to name the um, uh, assisting attorney by name in that document because that might change and you don't want to have to re-notice the client every time it changes. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think you have to give the, the individual's name. I don't think that's what's contemplated. And because it could be a group too. So, right. you know, it's not necessarily going to be one single person. 
Um, uh, so um, let's talk a little bit about the bank accounts. Um, so we all know that in New Mexico, only a licensed lawyer can sign on the IOLTA. I, I think it would be um, a violation of your competence duties and, and potentially extremely risky to actually let somebody who's not in your firm sign on your IOLTA. So we're not suggesting or requiring, the rule doesn't require that you go out and have your assisting attorney or law firm sign on your IOLTA, likewise not on your operating account. Easy way to deal with that might be a power of attorney. Of course, that doesn't help if uh, the lawyer's deceased because the power of attorney doesn't survive. Uh, some lawyers have said, well, then what's the point? And I think the point to this is information, right? If, if the assisting lawyer knows where the IOLTA is, uh, has a pretty good uh, set of IOLTA records, uh, knows where the operating account is and has a pretty good set of records, has access to the invoices, then doing that sort of uh, after the fact forensics on the, on the finances of the firm are, are a lot quicker, right? Because when that stuff is missing, now it's back to what Ann talked about at the beginning, which is she's having to try to put together by piecemeal. And sometimes the pieces are missing. Um, I know Client Protection Fund, for example, has been struggling with if a lawyer's deceased, client thinks there should be money in the trust account. The records are just not there, so you can't tell whether they should or shouldn't be there. Was it distributed properly or was it just gone? Um, you know, now you're having to spend months and months digging through that to try to figure it out. The client's having to wait months and months, even if they get reimbursed by client protection. Um, and it, it really delays the process and causes a lot of extra angst and stress for clients, for the lawyer's estate, for everybody involved. So it's not going to be a magic bullet, right? Because the IOLTA may be locked up by the bank, but having the information at least gets you one step closer so that a personal representative or an inventory attorney or the successor or whomever can get a court order to now let them have access to that. And with the, the ability to have good records in hand, start distributing a lot faster. And I think what we had said is it, you probably need to have a conversation with your bank about how, how to best go about it, like what it is they would require. Um, because obviously um, getting a court order, um, you know, if you have to go through like my office, it comes from the Supreme Court, it's a little bit uh, different than getting a court order from like say the district court in a probate matter. So um, you wanna know, be clear with what, what your bank is gonna require. Yeah, you wanna make sure that if, the, if your assisting attorney takes a power of attorney down there, the bank's not gonna send them packing because that's not in a form they like. So work with your bank in advance uh, as Ann said, to make sure that you can set it up as much as possible to, to reduce the stress uh, and, and sort of grease the skids. Um, likewise, I think you want to include your malpractice carrier in the discussion. And I think both the, the designating attorney and the assisting attorney should include their malpractice carrier in the discussion. Um, so one that they know, uh, a lot of malpractice carriers are requiring lawyers to start uh, designating and finding an assisting attorney and at least identifying those on the premium renewal every year. And the other thing is you want to reduce some of the question and anxiety about, well, what if somebody makes a claim against the lawyer or the successor in that transition period? Whose insurance is standing first in line? Whose insurance is standing second in line? Sort that out with your carrier. Um, I, the transition, succession and transition committee actually talked to some carriers and their response is, well, somebody's likely to cover it, but who stands first, who stands second, it's going to depend on the policy language. Talk to your carrier, right? Now, if you want more, 
there are resources to give you more. The State Bar website has a succession planning tab that you can look at. There is a succession planning handbook for lawyers. It was built primarily on the model that was developed in Oregon. Admittedly, that was done back in 2014 or 15, so it's a little bit dated. There needs to be some updates, and, and that will hopefully happen here in the next couple of years. But it gives you a good starting point. That handbook is primarily built around a distribution model, but it's got some forms and at least some things that will sort of um, guide you and help talk you through uh, what a succession plan might look like. Uh, and then annually, you will be required to certify on your license renewal form that you are in compliance. So just like now, you, you certify that either you're in compliance with or exempt from the trust accounting rules, um, your MCLE, your minimum continuing legal education, you're going to be asked to certify whether you're in compliance with the succession planning rules that you have a succession plan in place. Now, we heard a lot of concern about this. What happens if somebody is not compliant? And how is this going to be enforced? If I, if I don't have a succession plan next year, first off, how are you going to find out? Uh, and second off, uh, am I going to lose my license? So the, the way that we find um, many things is through disciplinary complaints. And so if we get a disciplinary complaint, we're going to start asking for um, succession plans. We may start asking for your succession plan and in, in, to come back with your response to the disciplinary complaint. It's very similar, actually, to what we're doing with trust account plans now. Um, that you are required to have. If you have an overdraft, if I get a notification of an overdraft, I'll ask for the trust account plan on top of just a response for the overdraft. So something very similar. We're not envisioning um, an immediate loss of license over somebody who doesn't have a, a succession plan. What we want is for you to just fix it, to pay attention to the rules and get it, get it um, fixed so that you are in compliance. And that's um, you know, going to be our initial approach. Now, obviously, if if it's an ongoing problem, it might have to have something else happen. But that's our, you know, our initial reaction is just going to be just fix, fix it. Yeah. And the good thing is, I will tell you, one of the ways you can just fix it is there is a um, form you can use that's uploaded on the State Bar website under the Professional Development Program tab um, and a succession planning link. Um, a checklist that you can go through built off of 16119 to start getting you moving in that right direction. And you can always reach out to me at the State Bar for it. I'm, I'm sure, um, likewise, the disciplinary board's happy to share that with you. Uh, I know Anne's taken a look at it. And, and again, I think what she said is really the key, right? That everybody just wants it fixed, right? The goal here is not punitive. The goal here is to make sure both you, the lawyer, your estate, if for any reason you happen to pass away, and your clients are all uh, protected in the event of that unexpected event. The triggering event for a succession plan can be a variety of things. The rule talks about it um, as a court with competent jurisdiction declaring a lawyer to be um, no longer competent to practice. It can be defined in the succession plan. Obviously, death would trigger it. Uh, if it's an incapacity issue, it can also be one that is certified by a competent medical professional. Or otherwise, I think the successor, I'm sorry, the assisting lawyer and the designated lawyer can identify and define what triggers the plan. I think that really is one of the, the features of this rule is it allows for a lot of customization. Um, and then what the assisting lawyer does when the, the plan is triggered is whatever the plan calls for, right? Uh, which is why that meeting with the, the uh, lawyer up front who's going to serve as the assisting lawyer or if it's a firm whoever the point person is why those ongoing meetings are important you've got to periodically review it it's not a plan if it's obsolete 
make sure if you update your information, I know that a lot of people are required every three months or six months or annually to update passwords on various sites. Make sure when you update your information on uh, in real time on your websites uh, that you're updating your succession plan and again, keeping your assisting lawyer in the loop. And I would suggest just, I, I know from our own, if a bus runs me over, I started having to put dates on things about the last time I, up, when I updated the passwords and so forth. So you know where you are. So I would suggest that if you're, when you're updating, put the date that you're updating. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily endorsing this as something anybody uses. Some people uh, have mixed feelings about this, but I know if you have a lot of passwords that you're trying to manage, using a, a password vault of some kind can sometimes be helpful because then you and your assisting attorney would need to know a password that could then open the vault and find all the passwords they need for um, access to all of the materials that you're going to put in your succession plan. Plenty of them on the um, on the websites. If you go out and, and uh, use a search engine uh, password vaults, you'll find some um, vary in terms of expense and cost, uh, some more reliable, obviously, than others. You could research that and decide if it fits for you. Um, as I said, there's a checklist to help um, at the State Bar um, Professional Development Program website. Um, and um, you can always reach out to me directly at the State Bar. And, and, uh, and uh, if you've got questions about um, succession planning, uh, happy to help uh, guide you through that. I think the disciplinary board I know has uh, an ethics advisory line that they also staff. They're also very open and willing to help people. And again, the goal is to get people in compliance, educate to compliance, not to act in any sort of punitive manner. I think it's important. Uh, I think it's something that I know many other jurisdictions have started looking at. There are at least one or two other jurisdictions, in a, including in addition to New Mexico, that have uh, mandatory succession planning. I think you're going to see more and more uh, requiring it as we have uh, more and more pressure on the profession. Uh, through capacity issues and, and other such things. So that's about all I've got. Anne, you have any last thoughts on the topic? No, I think that's that pretty much covers it. All right. Well, we appreciate you giving us a little bit of time to listen to us and uh, hope to see you all down the road somewhere. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the State Bar of New Mexico's Member Services Department. All editing and sound mixing was done by Blue Sky eLearn. Intro music is by Kevin McLeod at IncomTech. The views of the presenters are that of their own are not endorsed by the State Bar of New Mexico. Nothing said in this podcast was legal advice for you.